for the past five years, there's been a team within Alphabet's, aka Google's, moonshot factory called X that's been focused on improving sustainable agriculture through artificial intelligence, machine learning, and robotics. They've worked with partners throughout the ag industry to drive deeper understanding of the complex interactions between plants, environment, and farm management practices. They bring the agronomy expertise, the growing expertise, and the deep understanding of the challenge they're trying to solve. And we bring to the table the ability to collect data at scale and process it at scale. These are very different capabilities that if we can come together, both of us can do together what neither of us could probably achieve individually. And just this week, it was announced that this project has now become a company called Mineral. CEO Elliot Grant says their approach has already unlocked new insights for their industry partners, and we're just barely scratching the surface on the potential of this technology. What ML is extremely good at is organizing very large, complex data sets and discovering patterns. But it still needs human intuition to make sense of those patterns. And it's the combination of these two capabilities, human intuition and ML power and scale, I think is going to lead us to a very exciting next era of agriculture decision-making. We'll talk more about that next era of ag tech on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to take just a moment to recognize our quarterly presenting sponsor, which for this quarter is Acres. Name a place, a single source, where you can find land for sale, comparable sales, and easy-to-use maps. Can't do it? Well, that's where Acres comes in. This land analysis and mapping platform brings together the data you need to make confident decisions about buying, selling, or investing in a piece of land. That includes manually vetted comparable sales, soil data, crop history, elevation, flood insights, and more. There's no paywall. You can create a free account today at acres.co and access 10 plus layers of data along with land listings, tools for saving and customizing plans, and PDF report generation. If you're in the land business and need more than the basics, check out their premium and enterprise plans for features that support efficient due diligence, portfolio management, and fast valuations. It's all part of Acres' mission to make the land marketplace transparent and easy to access for anyone. Check out a parcel anywhere in the U.S. for free at acres.co. That's acres.co. Thank you to Acres for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, now back to today's episode with Dr. Elliot Grant, CEO of Mineral, which is Alphabet's bet in sustainable agriculture. Mineral is applying the latest breakthroughs in artificial intelligence to the existential challenge of sustainably doubling the planet's crop productivity. But Elliot and I get past the buzzwords here and into the details of what exactly this technology is enabling on a practical level and how it has the potential to impact agriculture and the way we do business in this industry. From my personal perspective, AI and machine learning or ML have been talked about quite a bit. Uh, since really way early on in this podcast, but it often felt like marketing to just make kind of a tool seem special. Uh, but this does feel like we're hitting this tipping point now, as I 
say this early in 2023, where there are some really impactful technologies emerging that can only exist because of the explosion in data collection and advancements in AI and ML. And I really find that to be among the most exciting aspects of ag tech today. Elliot's a recognized business leader and innovator in food and ag tech. He was the founder and CEO of Harvest Mark, the world leader in fresh food traceability, the CEO of Shopwell, a pioneering personalized nutrition company, and served as the vice president of the Produce Marketing Association. Elliot is a manufacturing engineer by training. He earned a PhD and master's in engineering from Cambridge University and is a named inventor on 36 U.S. patents covering topics ranging from cryptography and food traceability to satellite image analysis and plant phenotyping. I think you're really going to enjoy this fascinating conversation with Mineral CEO Elliot Grant. Yeah, so Alphabet created X about 12 years ago with the mission to create new businesses that could become Alphabet companies that would solve some of the world's hardest problems and that were intentionally separate from Google or Alphabet's core mission of search. And it was a really, I think, an insightful move by the founders at that time to anticipate how transformational technology was going to become on other industry verticals. And so they established X as a separate entity within Alphabet and recruited a very diverse group of engineers and scientists and thinkers to solve problems like self-driving cars that became Waymo, or the problem of transforming the global supply chain by solving the last mile delivery problem that became Wing, the self-flying drone business. Another example of an X graduate would be Verily, which applied AI and ML to the challenge of healthcare um, decision science. And so over the last 12 years, X has, has really, I think, played this extraordinary role of continually innovating ideas that are solving problems that are big, important, and hard. And to me, that's how I sort of think about what is really a moonshot. It is trying to tackle these radical problems with a different perspective. And what does it mean to graduate uh, from X? You used that term earlier, and obviously these other successful companies have graduated. Uh, what does it take to get to that point? And what's the significance of being graduated in this context? There's a recognition at X that the problems we tackle or try to tackle are audacious and difficult, and the failure rate is high, right? It's very unlikely that you're going to really solve some of these hard problems. And so for you know, the majority of ideas at X, they, they percolate internally and they don't make it. And that's very intentional. And so there's a culture at X of continued ideation and risk-taking with the knowledge that we can afford to take risks because we will maybe shut down an initiative and recirculate the people and the learning. But ultimately something has to come out the other end. And that's what we call graduation, which is a, a project or an idea has reached a level of maturity that it can stand up on its own two feet. It can basically take investment from Alphabet and become an independent legal entity. It's still a wholly owned subsidiary of Alphabet when it's launched as a graduate, but it stands alone and it's separate and it has its own identity and, and it can start to operate more as an independent company. Hmm. And it sounds like you started with sort of a vague mission of, can we bring AI and ML to food? Where do you even begin or where did you begin in trying to define what exactly that meant and, and how did you get it to the point where it was ready to be a standalone business like it is today? 
Yeah. So cast your mind back to 2016, 17. It was really the early days of computer vision. Um, it's sort of hard to believe that only six years ago, the idea of pointing a camera at something and getting an intelligent result was very novel. And so we started with this thesis that what if you could point a camera or point a you know, device at a plant and extract information from it in the same way that a human can? Even though that the results were relatively modest at that point, we could anticipate that the technology was going to get much better because that Moore's law is very predictable. So that was the, the germ of the idea. Like if you had this ability to use ML to perceive the plant world, what would you do? And so for the next couple of years, we explored widely over that territory. I think I probably did 150 interviews with industry folks to sort of ask around this question, what would you do differently if you had this capability? And that started to formulate for us a wider thesis around how perception, what we came to call plant perception, could transform multiple different parts of the agribusiness supply chain. For example, early on, we worked with crop breeders who were spending a lot of their time in test plots using visual observation to extract information, so plant phenotyping. This was clearly something that could be transformed by machine vision that could increase the scale and the accuracy and the reliability and repeatability. So that was sort of an early application of the technology. But as we worked our way through the supply chain, we saw more and more applications for this foundational capability. Obviously, in production agriculture, if I could identify plant health or weed pressure or weed species at high speed and in real time, that could transform precision agriculture and on and on. So the evolution of our thinking was what started off as an application, could we do this one thing, ultimately became capability. What would happen if agriculture had this capability to perceive the plant world at high speed, at high performance, and sort of ubiquitously, how would that change the decision-making of agriculture? Hmm. And, and along with that, did you focus exclusively on the software side of things? Or, or it seems like to me that's a blend of both a hardware problem and a software problem. So yes, plant perception is the marriage of hardware in the field, which is a hard problem to solve, and software running ideally on the device itself. So it's not purely a hardware or a software problem, it's this complicated interaction. And you can see this in, say, the mobile phone world. Like the performance of your camera phone is tightly integrated with the software that's running on the phone. And the two go back and forth. As the phone technology gets better, the software gets better. Again, so we could anticipate that would happen in this domain. So early on, we also realized there were no existing techniques or technologies to collect data in the field at high throughput. Our very first project actually was uh, two bicycles strapped together with a with a pixel phone lashed onto it with duct tape. And that, that was our initial data collection device. And it, you know, over just a couple of years, we rapidly iterated that because there was nothing on the market that we could get our hands on that would say, hey, I need a million photos of a plant taken at you know, this frequency with this quality and this consistency. So we had to build it. So step one was we had to build our own hardware to collect the training data. And then step two was we had to continually improve the model infrastructure to absorb all that data and train better quality image detectors. And that loop went round and round. As our software got better, we'd give feedback to the hardware team. Okay, we need to change the lighting. We need to improve our depth of field. 
and round and round we went to the point now where we have really evolved that platform. And what I mean by that is initially we had this data collection device, we call it the Rover, that we've deployed all over the world, multiple different crops, and collected by this point, billions of images of plants at every stage of growth in multiple different environments. And that has formed a corpus of high quality data that we use as a foundation. But we also recognize that that rover was not suitable for every application. Sometimes we need perhaps to go faster or we need to go above the crop. And the real breakthrough has been taking the learnings from that original rover and being able to deploy it to different devices. So we can now support perception on drones, on mobile devices, on farm equipment driving through the field. And that's really the, I think the future of our capability is to be able to transition from one platform to another and maintain this very high performance of plant perception. Yeah, and I definitely want to get back to that point about using it in various forms of, of data collection. Uh, before we do, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned interviewing 150 or so industry people. I imagine what they were telling you that sort of led you on this track or validated the track you're on was not, they weren't saying, hey, we need plant perception. They were saying, hey, we need, you know, other things. What, what were those things that made you realize like, okay, the agriculture industry really could benefit from this type of plant perception and, you know, AI, ML enabled uh, technology? That's such an interesting question because it's that truism, right? That if Henry Ford asked people what they wanted, it was a faster horse. And so you can't really go to the market and expect to get the answer to your product. So you're exactly right. What we heard was there's a lack of data to help my models perform. Or, gosh, I wish there was a way to automate and take the people out of this process because the people are a bottleneck or it's expensive or I can't scale. And so, as you said, nobody said, wow, I really need a high performance edge perception model that would really solve my problem. What they were talking about was explaining the pain points they had. And it was our job to then sort of distill out of that, gee, if there was such a thing as a high performance edge perception model, that would unblock some of the pain points we're hearing. It's interesting, to your point, nobody said it was about perception. It was often, it's about data, and maybe a frustration that they weren't getting from ML what the hype had been. By the time we had started this in 2017, companies in agriculture had been collecting data and hearing about big data for a while. And the meme, and to some extent is still true, is I've got all this data, but I don't have insight. And I, I can't tell you how many times we hear this. It's like, you know, what's it gonna take to convert all my data into something actionable? So if I was to sort of, step back, the bigger question was, how can we collect the right data at the right throughput? And how can we then make sense of it to actually make the decision we want? So part of the challenge that we solved was the data collection side on plant perception. This was really was a gap in the space. There was no way to observe the plant world at scale. So we, we went ahead and you know, have been solving that problem. But in parallel, there was a second problem, which is, okay, I have all this data, I still can't make any sense of it. So farms today are already generating a huge amount of data. Could be coming off farm equipment, could be coming from satellite data, weather stations, potentially you know, megabytes of data are being generated already today. And I think it's fair to say that most farmers are probably not able to make good use of that data. 
And we can anticipate that farmers will create far more data in the future. Smarter equipment, collecting image data, for example, there's high resolution satellite images coming online, there's drones. So we're entering a world where farms are generating these vast amounts of data. And I think one of our roles as Mineral is to help those farms and their advisors help make sense of that data and turn that into value for each farmer. And this actually really falls into sort of the Google DNA you would expect a team coming from Google to bring, which is how do we organize this vast, messy, disconnected data set? So it could be satellite imagery and farm equipment data and government data sets and data sitting in thumb drives and in Excel spreadsheets. How do we bring all these data sets together and make them useful and clean them up? And then secondarily, how do we build a layer of analytical tools on top of all of that so that the farmer or the agronomist or the seed advisor or the marketer can use this data and do something with it? So that was another discovery, I think, of our exploration early on was that there was this big missing piece of the puzzle of helping agribusinesses collect, clean, organize, and then make sense of their own data and join it with the data that we were providing. And I understand you, you've worked with a number of agribusinesses to that end. Could you share an, an example of sort of like where they were stuck in, in their particular context and how bringing this either plant perception or data organization or both solution to them kind of help them get to the next level? Sure. You know, there's a common problem we, that arises frequently in agriculture, and that's yield forecasting or yield prediction. Yield, of course, is the holy grail in many ways, or perhaps productivity, depending on who you're speaking to. But fundamentally, the question is, what's driving yield? How can I predict what I'm going to get? And what can I do about it? So one of the partners we worked with had been historically using traditional statistical methods to predict and forecast their yield. Uh, and their accuracy was plus or minus 30% in any given effort. So in any given week, their ability to forecast yield was no better than 30% accurate. And by the way, these guys were very good at their job. They were collecting data, they were organizing it, they were doing field surveys. But it's such a complex natural system that 30% was as close as they could get. We joined forces with this company. We brought to the table our ML capabilities, our ability to ingest multiple other types of data set. And within a year or so, we reduced that error to 10%. And so it really exemplified the power of ML to organize more than humans are capable of organizing. So ML has this ability to make sense out of chaos that is beyond human comprehension. And the story arguably could end there. It's like, well, ML beats humans, end of story. But actually, that's not what happened. What we noticed was even more interesting. The subsequent year, the human experts improved their performance to 10% as well, you know, seemingly independently of the AI. Because what was happening was the AI was providing insights that the human experts hadn't had before. And they were able to use those insights and join them with their own intuition to create new understandings of how the system worked. So we saw that it wasn't AI versus the human expert, it was AI plus the human expert made the two better together. I think this is a, a detail that, or a nuance that's often finessed perhaps by the ML companies who wanna sound like they're, you know, they're gonna replace everybody. Actually, it's a much better outcome where the two work in symbiosis. What ML is extremely good at 
is organizing very large complex data sets and discovering patterns. But it still needs human intuition to make sense of those patterns. And the humans comparatively have access to information that ML can't get access to. Perhaps there was a, a pest outbreak last week in a particular region. The ML doesn't know that, but the human can discover that with a quick phone call. And it's the combination of these two capabilities, human intuition and ML power and scale, I think is going to lead us to a very exciting next era of agriculture decision-making. And on the human side, is it just experience-based intuition that they're bringing to the table, or are there specific skills that can be developed to best leverage ML technology to get the best possible outcome? Gosh, that's an interesting question because it's, it's several layers. Um, superficially, using ML today is very difficult, right? It's still a esoteric tool. Very few people can write Python code or have ML experience. So ML itself is inaccessible to most companies. So one way to answer your question is, yes, you need some new skills to be able to make use of ML purely from a technical point of view. But perhaps the deeper answer to your question is, even if you're not an ML expert, how can you make the best use of what ML is capable of? And I just think humans are intuitively good at this, right? Humans are pattern recognition maestros. We're just extremely good at drawing conclusions from relatively small data sets. And so I think that the challenge for companies like Mineral and any company really in ML is to present the information in a way that is as useful as possible to the human expert. And you know, we've, we've evolved to be able to make decisions quickly from relatively small data sets. ML is at the beginning of its life cycle, trying to figure out how can it add most value. And it's incumbent upon technology companies to make the tools as helpful and useful as possible. Yeah, it makes sense. So, I mean, if I'm kind of tracking here, you know, nobody's going to dispute the fact that we are collecting a bunch of data in agriculture, food and agriculture. And so what I'm hearing from you is that if we can get ML and AI to be very, very good at organizing that data, humans are naturally very, very good at spotting patterns if the data is organized in a way where it can show us those patterns. Is that on the surface accurate? Yes, that's a, that's part of what I'm saying is, yeah, can we... Can we leverage the power of ML to complement humans? But, but you raise an interesting other point, which is companies have been collecting data for a long time. But what we have observed in the last five years is there's a big gap between the data that is needed to train high-performing ML models and unfortunately the kind of data that's been collected typically. I think one of your previous guests used the expression, I rather liked it, which was data is an asset and it's an appreciating asset. In other words, the earlier you start collecting it, the more valuable it will be in the future. And that's absolutely right. I like to say that the best time to start collecting data was 10 years ago. And the second best time is tomorrow. And it's a little flippant, but it really is important in agriculture because we won't see another year like 2022 or 2021 or 2020. And so the importance of training ML models is the diversity of the data that you have. And so in any given year, you are limited to the diversity of data you can collect. So I would maybe qualify the comment that data is an appreciating asset and say, not all data is created equal. What I really want to collect is diverse data. So what our experience has been working with many of our partners, they've been collecting data, but it's often incomplete and that can be problematic. It is disparate, meaning it's sitting in different systems and it's discontinuous, meaning it doesn't they don't join together very nicely. 
And these are some of the problems that we've set out to solve is how do we help our partners augment the data they already have, clean it up, curate it, and then build technology that can actually draw the insights that they've been looking for. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to go back just a minute to, to the example you gave of the partner you're working with to do yield prediction. And um, I, I'm going to wrap two questions into one here because it may make more sense to attack one first than the other. But the two questions are, number one is you said it took about a year to kind of get to that point. Is that a normal amount of time to expect to sort of like train the ML to be effective? And then secondly, is that normally how you work with a partner where they say, hey, we want to get better at this, in this case, yield prediction, but we have this problem. We just want to get better. Can you make us better. So those are two questions I know, but attack whichever one makes the most sense to hit first. Yeah, makes sense. ML is still at the beginning of its evolution, I would say, in agriculture. And therefore, it's unlikely you can walk into a new partner and have a solution that's ready to go off the shelf. And the reason is there's so much diversity in the agriculture space. So if I'm working with a, a partner in corn in Iowa and develop a solution, I shouldn't expect that solution to work perfectly in Nebraska in corn. There are enough subtle differences. And this is a nuance that I think is important to understand of ML. It learns subtle differences. A common experience is you train a model, let's say it's a satellite model, to detect crop type. That's a pretty common thing to want to do. And I train it on data collected in Nebraska. And then I point that same model at a neighboring state and the performance drops. And that can be quite surprising because from the human's point of view, these two data sets look exactly the same, but the ML is learning very subtle differences. And so when we enter a project, we typically will set the expectation that if we have an existing model, we'll need to retune it and retrain it on data that's localized to you or personalized to you. Today, that might take weeks, months, or potentially a year, depending on how complex and, and diverse the data is that we're trying to organize. But the goal is to get that down from weeks to days to potentially hours. We're not there yet, not just Mineral as a company, but the industry and the technology is, is not there yet. But I, again, I can confidently anticipate that that's where we're going to get to. So it does take time to retune and retrain these models. And the, I think the other thing worth saying is this never ends, right? ML, it's not a once and done tool. The technical term is they drift. Meaning that if I train a model this year, next year its performance will be slightly worse, the year after it'll be worse again. Because of these subtle changes in the underlying data, the model will need to be continually retrained and retuned. And I think that's important for anyone dealing in the ML space to really understand that this is a never ending process of continuous learning. And which means that the technology needs to be continually collecting data, verifying its accuracy, retraining the models and then redeploying those models out into the field. Hmm. But at the same time, I would imagine you, you establish a new baseline every time, you know, for example, the example you shared about yield prediction, the next time you have a partner that wants to talk about yield prediction, you've got a little bit of learning from that that you can apply, which theoretically might speed it up. But also I would imagine the uh, robustness and the diversity of their data sets probably helps determine how long it will take for it to work as well. Is that right? 100% correct. Yeah. So if we have a pre what we'd call a pre-trained model for a certain crop type, that would be our starting condition, our baseline. And then we would aim to improve that or tune that to maybe to a different location or to a different crop type. And I think you can anticipate that the more we do that, the better it gets. So there's no doubt there's a, 
there's a virtuous cycle here of the models getting better the more they learn. And in fact, that's been our sort of fundamental to our strategy. And the reason that we cover many different crop types and many different geographies is because we wanted to build up this corpus of understanding, this what we call the knowledge graph of multiple different crops in multiple different years and multiple different locations. We've already built up that head of steam, if you like, to have high performing models so that when we do approach a new partner, we're not starting from zero. Right. But at the same time, that probably makes it difficult to create like a product. You know, I mean, traditionally people want a new company to have a product and they can evaluate the company based on its product. But your product is sort of your ability to solve these unique problems for each partner. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We are not really positioning ourselves, certainly at the moment, as sort of off the shelf product company. You know, you can't go and buy a mineral widget off the shelf. And that's very intentional. We provide services to our partners who then wrap our services in other layers and they are providing the product to the end customer, whether that's a farmer or an agronomist or for internal use. And I know the term is somewhat overused, but we really are a platform provider of tools and capabilities. It's a mixture of hardware and software that we bring those capabilities to our partners and then collaboratively assemble new capabilities, new products that they can bring to market. So yes, the way you characterize it is correct. There's no product that is you know, on our website that you can click and buy. Right. And I, I like the yield prediction uh, example because I think a lot of listeners probably know this, but I mean, whereas in the Midwest, you, you can have a yield monitor and see in real time what you're yielding. In most crops, that's just not the case. And so yield prediction is not just helpful in knowing what you're going to be able to sell. It's helpful in knowing how much irrigation, how much fertilizer. I mean, it has a lot of big uh, implications. Is there another example, though, that you could share to give us a sense of sort of like what role mineral fills for these partners that we could talk about as well? Sure. So, so I gave you the example of ML applied to a decision like what the drivers of yield. Let's go to the problem of weed pressure. So you know, if we talk about sustainability, which is actually a very foundational driver for mineral, one of the challenges for farmers is weed pressure, of course. And one of the solutions is herbicide if you're not organic. And you know it's a very effective tool, but it comes with consequences, as we know. It's driving weed tolerance, potentially overuse is creating toxicity. So the industry generally understands it would be better to use less chemical herbicide. The challenge is the precision with which we can apply herbicide is very limited today. So here we are, it's 2023, we're seeing technologies come to market to do precision spraying, and that's very exciting. I think that's going to be an important capability in the future of precision farming. And one of the challenges within precision farming is perception. Can I perceive what is right in front of the sprayer or right in front of the tractor fast enough to take an action? So this, you know, going back to our comment about the how fundamental perception is to many farm practices, this is a good example. So one of the problems we've been working on with one of our partners, which is Syngenta, is can we create AI models that are very high performing at detecting weeds, detecting what species the weed is, and doing it at very high speed and low latency, meaning can I perceive the image and make a decision within tens of milliseconds, because that's how long you've got to make a decision whether and what to spray. So that's a really good use case for AI and ML. It covers a lot of interesting problems. Can I do multi-species classification? In other words, it's 
not enough to say this is a green thing on a brown background. And actually, it's not even enough to say it's a crop or a weed. The ultimate goal should be to say, well, what species of weed is it? What stage of growth has it reached? And then what should I do? So that's really where we're trying to get to is that level of performance and doing it at high speed and doing it on the edge. I think this is a term of art which is helpful to describe. Most farms are not connected to the internet when you're out in the middle of the field. And even if you were, you don't have time to send that image back to the cloud, get an answer and come back. So you have to be able to make that decision right on the device. So that's called on the edge. So we have to solve model performance. We have to do it on an edge device. It has to operate extremely quickly. And then it, it has to operate reliably in multiple different environments. And I think this is, again, one of the challenges is, is not well understood, that a model that performs really well looking at dark brown soil in Tennessee suddenly performs really poorly when you're looking at more reddish soil you know, further south. I'm just making up the examples, but you get the point. The models can become very sensitive to environmental conditions. So one of the big problems we've been working hard on is this what's called domain adaptation. Can my model be resistant to different domains? And that is just hard work. There's no, there's no shortcuts around it. You have to be able to capture data from multiple different locations and create these models that are resistant to these changes. Because the reality is there's no way to visit every single field and train a model on every single possible condition. You have to train a model that can interpolate these different situations. And that turns out to be extremely hard. And so is it, is it the fact that it's hard, and not to pick on Syngenta, but they're a big company with lots of resources and have been in agriculture a long time. You know, what convinces them like, oh, we need to go to mineral to do this because they have whatever this missing ingredient is. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so whether it's us or Syngenta or any company that's trying to set out to train a high-performing ML model, you need several components. You need a huge amount of data. In farming, that means I've got to grow a lot of crops in lots of different places. And so there's a lot of agronomy and logistics that has to be done. I have to collect the data, so I have to have equipment that can import millions or hundreds of millions of images. And then I have to have data infrastructure to process those hundreds of millions of images. It's very difficult to find those three different capabilities under one roof, right? The ability to do large-scale agronomy, the ability to have data collection at scale, and the ability to process these massive data sets. So our proposition to a partner like Syngenta is they bring the agronomy expertise, the growing expertise, and the deep understanding of the challenge they're trying to solve. And we bring to the table the ability to collect data at scale and process it at scale. I'm not saying there, there is no company that couldn't do it all, but I think this is a really clear example where these are very different capabilities that if we can come together, both of us can do together what neither of us could probably achieve individually. Well, along similar lines, how do you determine whether someone is a good partner for Mineral? I mean, is it, is it anyone in food and ag that has you know uh, the need for this type of capability or is it more specific than that? I understand your mission has something to do with sustainability as one component. Um, how do you determine the right partner, the right project for Mineral versus one that maybe is not a good fit, at least not today? Yeah, so as you mentioned, our mission is very much sustainability driven. And that's why Alphabet is actually interested in, in investing in agriculture is because we have collectively have a sustainability goal. And so that really is one of the first filters that we apply when we're thinking of a partner. Is there an aligned partner who also has 
a real commitment to sustainability? Can we together improve the learning and develop technology that is going to accelerate the industry? So there's something around the focus of the partner. There's something about the scale of the partner as well. We only have capacity to work with a handful of partners. And so we are selective in who we work with. They don't all have to be huge, but it's easier to work with a company that we can scale with than perhaps working with a lot of startups. And believe me, I love working with startups, having been a startup CEO multiple times. You know, they bring a tremendous amount of energy and insight and often innovation to the table. Um, so we're, we've actually picked a mix of partners at Mineral. We've picked some of the biggest players in input, such as Syngenta, in growing and uh, breeding. So Driscoll's is a big partner of ours in the strawberry, raspberry, and blackberry business. And we also work with the CGIAR, which is a non-governmental research organization that's one of the world leaders in crop research and breeding, particularly for crops that are not widely bred. So we've picked partners in the ag ecosystem that can really elevate our understanding and can take our technology and run with it quickly. And what changes can we expect now that you've sort of graduated here from X to now being the kind of standalone mineral entity? Uh, will the projects and partners be more of the same or are there going to be other differences that we might notice from the company? So there's a few things we are evolving now that we have graduated. One is we're more public facing. Historically, and I think quite rightly, X has a veil of secrecy. It likes to be able to experiment you know, in secret and stealth mode. But now that we've transcended that, we are now more public. We can talk about the work we're doing. And that's one of the reasons I'm talking to you, Tim. I'm very excited to have that opportunity. But it's also an opportunity for us to now begin to scale up our solutions and productize them. Prior to graduation, we were in this learning mode, exploration, uh, and iteration. Now that we've really identified some of the core competences that we have focused on, we're beginning to productize those as offerings. And and what excites you about all this? I mean, the, the examples are compelling, but how do you envision the future of agriculture being different as a result of these types of capabilities? So I don't think I need to tell you or any of your audience how important agriculture is to the future. And all that we know the statistics, you know, we have to produce 70% more food in the next 30 years, et cetera. And these are tremendously challenging goals. And I think without as many companies as possible, not just uh, Mineral and Alphabet, but as many companies as possible coming forward with their best ideas, unless we have everybody trying their best, we are not going to achieve these goals. So I'm excited about this space because I think it's extremely important. And I'm excited that companies like Alphabet are putting their best technology on the table and saying, we want to be part of the solution. I'm also excited about the space because you know I've worked in the space for 16 years. I deeply enjoy working in this industry. I like the people I get to work with. I love how mission focused everyone I work with is. And so it just is a very rewarding industry to work in. So you know it's a hard problem and I think many of us are motivated by solving hard problems. It's a noble purpose. And so I think many of these things line up not just for me but for my whole team of why we choose to spend our time and all of our energy trying to solve this problem of making agriculture more sustainable and more productive. 
Well, thank you very much to Elliot Grant for being on the show today. I'm excited to share this story with all of you in the very same week that they're making big headlines for officially becoming a standalone company. I highly encourage you to go learn more about them on their website, which is just mineral.ai. I'll make sure I link to that in the show notes directly as well. And I want to give a big thank you and shout out to Arishi Peth and Megan Fallon both for making this interview possible here today. Thanks as well to our quarterly presenting sponsor, Acres. Go check them out at acres.co. And last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Innovation.